doing, man? This is Now Playing's Die Hard Retrospective Series. Welcome to the party, pal! Hosted by Arnie. It's always more of a Star Wars guy. Stuart. He didn't bring me along for my charming personality. And Jacob. Flying in the ointment, Hans. The monkey in the wrench. Pain in the ass. It's a good day to die hard. So each week, we will be watching and reviewing a new die hard film, ending with a weekend of release review of the new movie. Another basement, another elevator. How can the same shit happen to the same guy twice? This review will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Today we're discussing Die Hard, starring Bruce Willis, Alan Rickman, Bonnie Bedelia, Reginald Vell Johnson, and William Atherton, Hans, Booby, I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Playing. Man, and Sinatra, it could have been him. Instead we get this Willis dude, a steward in L.A. This is Jacob, the host that likes to podcast hard. Not touching that one? So we are finally in our second episode discussing Die Hard. The movie that everyone probably really wanted us to start with. But hey, we had an extra week between this and Texas Chainsaw. We had to fill it with something. And eh, Detective kind of made sense. You guys liked it. <laughs> but it wasn't a Die Hard film. We all agree on that. It wasn't. And yet I will bring up again, because it was made based on a character who had a sequel book that did become Die Hard, Frank Sinatra was offered this part first. They had to, contractually. He was 70-something years old, but this could have been old blue eyes running around the Nakatomi Plaza. It obviously would have been a very different film, but probably closer to the book. The character did age in the book. It was an old man in the novel. I don't know. What do you think? Would you have accepted Frankie's final performance being this film? This would not be a retrospective if it was Sinatra. I'm just going to put it out there. I don't think we would have had another four films come out after this one if it was. It certainly wouldn't be another one this year. (laughs) At least not with Sinatra in the role. No, that's true. They would have had to recast after 98, for sure. He chose not to do Die Hard, and then they decided to revamp it for another Fox project as a sequel, Commando. In the book, it is a story of Joe Leland in a tower trying to rescue his daughter. Well, that dynamic had played out in Commando. This could have been Arnold and Alyssa Milano. What do you guys think? Alyssa Milano is hotter than Bonnie Bedelia. (laughs) But one of the things I like about this film, and we'll talk about it, is that it's not Arnold. That's one of the big appealing things about this movie is it's Bruce Willis and not Arnold or Stallone. I know Arnold was their first choice. I know even Burt Reynolds was asked before Bruce Willis, but I don't think that we would be talking about that movie today either. Indeed. Everything hinges on the fact that it is Willis in this part and no other star of the 80s. He was not a star. Let's flash back to 1988. Bruce Willis was a smug guy who was charming on the first season of Moonlighting, a show that was already in decline and had made two really terrible comedies for his theatrical debut. Well, I have to disagree with the in decline in 1988 for Moonlighting because the entire reason I was at Die Hard opening weekend is because I was a Die Hard Moonlighting fan. I never missed an episode. I recorded them all on my VHS. I was waiting with bated breath to find out what was happening with Maddie's baby. And I (laughs) loved Bruce Willis. Did I have the return of Bruno? Why, yes, I do. (laughs) 
Maybe the only way that he's like Sinatra is that he tried to sing. It should be pointed out. He had an album. I don't know that I'll ever call him a musician, but yeah. I like the album, though. I know. And I liked it when he sang on Moonlighting. I was a huge Bruce Willis fan. This, to me, looked like David from Moonlighting in a building with a big gun. I was there to see Bruce Willis because Blind Date didn't quite give me what I was looking for. No, indeed, it did not. This movie, I want to remind people, was a joke. When it was coming out, it looked bad. People made fun of this. I remember thinking, oh, this will never work. It's got the guy from Moonlighting, and it's got a terrible title. Die Hard is a terrible title. This is Sears Car Battery. It was a punchline for a late night talk show host. They were like, not a bad way to go. I remember people openly mocking this film until the reviews started coming in, until Bruce Willis did Oprah, until the perception changed and we accepted that Willis could be a movie star. But at that time, in this day and age, this looked like the dog of summer to me and to many. Yeah, I completely missed those conversations. I saw the ads with him and the duck, come out to the coast, get together, have a few laughs. And I'm like, this is a movie I have to see. I'm a few years younger than you guys. I wasn't paying attention to moonlighting at the time. I was probably watching like Growing Pains or something. But I remember my dad went and saw this film and it's all he could talk about. Like, I had to see, because this is all he talked about for like a week. You know, the Chris Farley act on Saturday Night Live, the old actor, he's like, you remember the time when you shot that guy? Yeah, that was cool. Like, that's how excited my dad was for this. Just recounting all these scenes, and, and so I finally got to see it. I don't remember any bad press or mocking of it. This thing was hyped up by my dad and his friends. They were the right demographic, 30-something, this action film, and it got me excited for it as a kid. Yeah, I'm not saying once it opened, it did poorly. I'm just saying the build up to this, this was not expected to be a seminal action film, one that would change the landscape for action films in the decade to come. But it did become that, and almost instantaneously. But I just want people to keep perspective when we come back to Die Hard. Its original perception was not that it was going to be big at all. It was a cheapie that Fox was throwing out in the middle of the summer with the guy on a TV show who was no action star, who was no star at all. That said, a couple of things. I agree that was the perception. I was reading how they were even trying to downplay the fact that Bruce Willis was the star. They had posters out there that didn't even show him. It just showed a building. But he was paid a huge salary for this. Even though he was unproven, they really wanted him and gave him an unheard of five million to do this movie. For this movie? Yeah. What? Yeah. Wow. They knew that this was the guy they needed to bring the combination of humor and action. And I honestly had thought for the 25 years this movie's been out that the humor was perhaps Bruce Willis ad-libs. There's the notorious tale of Bonfire of the Vanities, how he can't wipe that smirk off his face. I figured maybe this was written for Arnold and he ad-libbed all the jokes. But no, this was scripted and they knew that he could do it. And so they paid him $5 million to work on Moonlighting during the day and then Moonlight on Die Hard at night. Wow, he had an awesome agent. That's incredible. I would have never thought that in 1988 anyone would give Bruce Willis six figures for a movie at all. That's crazy. But I'm proven wrong. We'll get into it when we get into it. Obviously, it worked out and has become, I would say, the seminal film in Bruce Willis's career. It's the reason why we're doing this franchise is every five years or so, he goes back to that well. 
it's his bread and butter. I don't know that this is going to be Bruce Willis's best movie, but it's his most beloved one. And it is the one that has the most dividends for him. And you know what? I'm optimistic about this series. I'm going to go ahead and say it. I'm pretty much a newbie. I have fond memories of Die Hard 1 and Die Hard 2. But other than that, I haven't seen it. I didn't see The Detective before this. I haven't seen Die Hard 3, 4, or obviously this new film as well. I feel like I could like all of them. I have no ill will or ill wish to them. But I'm, aside from the first two, pretty ignorant about what we're going to be doing here. I'm not the action movie guy. And I'm the fan here. This is, especially Die Hard, like you said, Stuart, is most beloved. I'm trying to think what else I'd put above as far as what I'd want to watch from a Bruce Willis film. No, it's Die Hard. It's one of my favorite films, one of my favorite action films. And this is a series when the new films come out, I'm there opening weekend. I wasn't with this first one because I was kind of young, but the last one, part four, part three, their opening weekend. These are films that I rewatch, especially this first Die Hard film, but this whole series It's one that I'm excited for. Sometimes we're a fan of a series because we like the first couple and we know it's going to get weaker. But a couple of these, it's been a while since I've seen them, but I feel real strongly in favor for all of these films. And that's where you and I differ, Jacob. And this is why I cannot be the fan on this one. I was a Bruce Willis fan, and I still am. I did see every film he did from Look Who's Talking to Hudson Hawk to Billy Bathgate until around the mid-90s, I finally had to stop doing that. But I don't know that he's made a worse film, including all those that I've named, than Live Free or Die Hard. Wow. Okay. I walked out of that film so disgusted, I had a crystal skull level reaction. Ooh, that's bad. So we will get to that one in just a few weeks, but I do recall really liking the first three films. I remember hating the fourth one, and it soured me on this whole franchise. So I am a jaded ex-fan returning to Die Hard. Well, I'm welcoming you back to the fold, Arnie. I hope this ends up being a positive experience for you. I think we'll have three weeks of good and (laughs) two weeks of shit. But we (laughs) will see. Well then, Arnie, why don't you kick us all off with the plot summary? I actually did something a little bit different for this one. Did you make a song? It is a Christmas film. I did not make a song. Damn it. It is a Christmas film, but I did not make a song. Instead, the first paragraph of the plot summary comes entirely from the trailers. It's Christmas Eve in L.A., but a team of terrorists have their own holiday plans. But the one thing they didn't plan on was New York cop John McClane. Within this skyscraper, high above the city, 12 terrorists have declared war. They're as brilliant as they are ruthless. Now the last thing McClane wants is to be a hero. But he doesn't have a choice. He's an easy man to like and a hard man to kill. Do you need more? Can I hit a button and buy a ticket? That was a pretty good (laughs) movie phone impersonation. (laughs) Press 5 for showtimes. Hiding in the still under construction building, McLean kills many of the terrorists while the cop and FBI are impotently locked outside the building. McLean's only contact via CB with police sergeant Al Powell, who lets John know of the actions outside. Al is a desk jockey, unable to use his gun since accidentally shooting a kid who had a toy pistol. It's soon revealed the terrorists aren't interested in political gains, but in 640 million in bearer bonds that are stored in the building's vault, and they plan on killing all of their hostages as they escape. 
A news reporter reveals on air that the man in the building is McLean and his estranged wife is Holly Gennaro, an employee of the Nakatomi Corporation. With this information, terrorist leader Hans Gruber takes Holly with him while he sends the other hostages to their death. Through a series of daring stunts and explosions, McLean saves the hostages and finally has his showdown with terrorist leader Gruber, who holds McLean's wife hostage. With a pistol taped to his back, McLean kills the final terrorist, Gruber falling out of a 30th story window to his death. Al has his moment of glory, killing one terrorist gunning for McLean, and even Holly has her moment as she punches out the snotty reporter who revealed John's identity as credits roll. It's a simple plot, which is why every story pitch for an action film for the next decade was, it's Die Hard in a blank. It was. I could have just done the plot summary, it's Die Hard in a building. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to be fair, this movie came from another movie as well. It's Die Hard in Towering Inferno. If you want to know the real origins of this, that the author of the book had seen that blockbuster 1976 disaster movie and said, you know what would make this even better is if there were people running around shooting guns at each other. And that the real inspiration for this was Towering Inferno. You guys ever seen that one? Long time ago. Yes. But what I want to know is who sees the Towering Inferno and then goes, hey, that 60s novel, The Detective, needs to be in here. (laughs) Well, the band that wrote The Detective. And I'll go ahead and talk about that over at Books and Nachos and how we go from that gritty of its time 1968 drama to this action film written in 1979 it's a stark jump even in book form but it makes a little bit more sense in the page than it does going from that sinatra movie to this bruce willis movie this week there's no correlation between those two movies but there is some correlation in the books and i'll bring it up as it seems appropriate as we go through the film well was it a prequel and he was running from Al Capone like gangsters in the building? Because this is a lot younger than the Sinatra we saw in Detective. No, but it could have been played by Sinatra. The character is old and he is dealing with the fact that his daughter has grown up. It's the end of the 70s. She's now a coke sniffing oil executive. This tower is not Nakatomi in the book. It is an oil company and that the terrorists are in fact politically driven. It's not just about the money. They're attacking this oil company for what they've done to South America. Like I said, I'll bring them up as they seem appropriate. Largely, I was shocked at how similar book and movie are. There's only a few tweaks to it that have been made. So you're telling me if this was a more faithful adaptation, we could have seen Frank Sinatra saying, yippee Kaye, motherfucker? Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. I do feel like the jokes they go with are more Willis tailored, but the character, even on the page, is someone that talks about how he has to use braggadocio, has to give smart-ass responses as a way of staying alive. The character is always sassy. And yeah, I had Sinatra in my head when I read the book. The only time I get Sinatra in my head is when Fly Me to the Moon gets stuck in a loop. But this movie will always be Willis to me. And that's where it starts, is with Willis in full-on David Moonlighting mode coming into L.A. And right off the bat, it's going to set up one of the classic scenes, one of the things that makes this film so memorable. He's stressed out with this flight, and the guy sitting next to him, hey, take off your shoes and socks and make fists with your toes whenever you get to wherever you're going. I love that they set that up. It's not just by happenstance that one of these great memorable scenes, one of the things that makes Die Hard stick in your head. Watching this film as a young kid, I didn't understand Chekhov's gun. That that wouldn't make any sense to me. But when it came to storytelling, I could understand you tell someone to take their shoes off in the first act, they better be running through glass barefooted in the third act. This movie 
right off the bat starts teaching me as a young kid about storytelling. There is a lot of economy to this story. It's true of the novel. It's even more true of the screenplay. Anything introduced has a callback to it. And it's, yeah, a very strong piece of writing. I think it's an even stronger piece of directing. I'm going to go ahead and start off with a little bit of controversy here. I do feel like the weak component of this here is Willis. I don't think he's very good in this part. I think he gets through it. He definitely has trouble in some of the more dramatic stages. But I'll go ahead and say it. I don't feel like it had to be this guy. I look for him to get better. I'll put it that way. I think that his best diehard performances may be ahead because if there's a weak link to this movie, it is the fact that it's Willis's not greatest performance. He's new. He's green. This is his first really big film. And you can see him struggling to play some of the terror and some of the angst, showing some of the side that isn't smarmy and sarcastic. Jacob, your role in this podcast has now changed from fan to ref. The steward and I are going to fight. And I'm biased. I'm already on your side, Arnie, and I don't know what you're going to say. Because <laughs> I disagree with you, Stuart. I disagree strongly. I know that you both do, and I'm not saying that everything that he does here is bad. What I'm saying is I buy him when he's being cocky, when he's showing pain and wounds. Not so much. All I'm saying is I would be open to the idea of someone else playing this part. You guys are saying you were pre-sold on this being Willis's greatest moment. I think it is his most famous role. I do not think this is his best performance by a long shot. I do think this is his best performance because to me, Bruce Willis has about three stages in his career and they can all be marked by his hairline. <laughs> and this is... The early stage of Bruce Willis, when he was still having fun, still a fun presence on screen, still either wearing the toupee or with the full head of hair. I'm pretty sure it's a toupee. But this is where I liked Willis best. Why did I watch Moonlighting week after week? I wasn't a big Sybil Shepherd fan. I just was enraptured with the character that Bruce Willis created. I wanted to grow up to be David. Why did I see Blind Date? It had him in it. Why did I see Look Who's Talking? It wasn't for Travolta, even though they would eventually pair back up in Pulp Fiction. But I feel that as the hair went back, as success came along, as he divorced Demi, he became more stoic. I think that all of the people like you, Stuart, who derided him for having fun on screen, turned him into a sourpuss who can't have fun on screen anymore. He's so nervous about Tom Hanks' little jab during Bonfire of the Vanities about wiping the smirk off his face that now the man won't even smile. So, no, I do think that we are seeing Willis at his best. I'll just say this. As far as the hairline goes, when Bruce is bald, I'm in. When Bruce has got hair or wig, usually not in. That's all I'm going to say. I like swarmy Bruce Willis here. I like that he's got a smirk the whole time. Can you imagine if this was a sequel to Commando, if this was Arnold? Even if it's the same script, it's just Arnold playing John McClane. It's a totally different film. If it's Sylvester Stallone, it's a totally different film. I like that he brings this more of an everyman feel to it and that he brings this humor. If this was Arnold, they'd be bad one-liners. With him, this is a guy I could sit around with, drink some beers, and crack some jokes with. This is what made Die Hard revolutionary, is we had gone so far into Rambo territory, and Jacob and I explored Rambo territory thoroughly, you can find that in the archive section, but we'd gone from, I'm your worst nightmare, and where do you go from there? I have questioned 
whether or not I'm even an action movie fan on various podcasts here, specifically the James Bond series, because to me, there's nothing really exciting about a guy standing there shooting a gun. I just do not get enthralled with that. So why am I drawn to Die Hard? It's because this guy isn't Arnold. This guy is outnumbered, outgunned, outpowered. I feel that he can barely hold his own in a fist fight against all these terrorists. It is a wonderful dichotomy where you have a weak hero that you are rooting for to overcome something versus a super he-man on the screen who feels like is compelled to win. In watching Die Hard this time, I realized something I'd never noticed before. You talk about the scenes where Willis emotes and you think he doesn't get through it. To me, I'm thinking of the scene where he's pulling the glass out of his feet and having the conversation with Al and saying, I've told my wife I loved her a thousand times. I never told her I'm sorry. I realized in this watching, that scene is to set me up that Bruce Willis will die. Because how many movies have we seen where the hero saves people but goes down in the blaze of glory? Hell, Willis did it himself in Armageddon. Willis could not survive this film. I would never feel that about Stallone. I would never feel that about Arnold. Willis makes this. Furthermore, I've seen this movie hundreds of times. Really paying attention for this podcast. I notice how passive Willis is, which strengthens him as this everyday man character as he's not Rambo. He's not barging into every room gunning down terrorists. The first act, he's hiding from the terrorists most of the time. He's only attacking when he's stuck in a corner. The second act, he tries to turn the whole thing over to the cops and let them deal with it. He's trying to just survive and stay alive most of this film. It's not that he's on the attack. He's trying to wait it out and trying to stay alive and trying to keep the hostages alive. But this is not Rambo. This is not Arnold barging in with machine guns in each hand, blowing down terrorists. Well, no, if my choices are Stallone and Arnold, obviously Willis outacts them in any moment. There's probably a reason why I wasn't on the Rambo series as well. I tend to not like their movies, but... I will say this, what does humanize him is not what Willis does, it's what they do with his wife. He's divorcing, and I think that's a really good end. Even though I don't think Willis is particularly good at capturing the pain of that, I do really like that all of this is set up on the assumption that he's come to L.A. from New York to try and salvage some kind of Christmas with his estranged wife and kids. This is a good setup, and this is what gets me in to buying into him. The fact that his wife is one of the hostages and that he has made a sacrifice to come here, I think that that is what really humanizes the character and gives some of what you're talking about, his humane qualities to him. That's what I love about this film is that it's not just your standard action film. There's layers to it. You get the whole commentary on Japanese corporate takeover in America. Then you get this whole romance with him and his wife. And again, I love the writing here. It's not them bickering on the phone back and forth where you get this idea that they're estranged. It's Holly on the phone with her maid saying, did Mr. McLean call? Just a very subtle, okay, they're not a very happy couple because she's calling him Mr. McLean. Yeah, I love the fact that when he looks her up on the computerized directory and finally gets to the building, she's going by her maiden name. And of course, that will play into the plot later, but it also just says so much about where they are as a couple as he's heading into this. We feel for the guy. That's painful to find out that your wife is already calling herself her old name. I agree that this script is incredibly well written. And one of the things I noticed this time is you mentioned the shoes in the beginning, Jacob, and... I think of things that I feel are overly written. If you go back to our Back to the Future podcast, or the first one, I was a little hard on that movie because I felt it was too clever for its own good. This one, I feel, is the perfect amount of clever. Things like the shoes do pay off in big ways. 
this guy is barefoot for the majority of the movie. And the reason being is that little bit of conversation there. And the way that this entire romance and the estrangement is told is done through really well done dialogue, primarily between McLean and his limo driver Argyle. There is the scene with Bonnie Bedelia where they have their little spat, but we know all of that before they ever get there. So I think that Willis is doing a great job being this laconic cop character. He slides into this well, but it is very well written for him to do. It's all on the page for him to just own. Yeah, looking at it as a love story, I'm impressed by the fact that they keep those characters apart until the very end. By and large, they have almost no screen time together, and yet you feel like all of this is hinging on him saving her. It's very well done in that respect. I I love the fact that he's here to save the marriage, and that, yeah, in some weird way, it takes a terrorist heist in order to get these two to work out their differences. And the terrorists, you say that you can't believe Bruce Willis got paid that much and that we mentioned how the studio was a little embarrassed by him. I do think this is a great performance, but he is upstaged. Alan Rickman, wow, is he good in this film. I've seen him in other stuff since. I think probably the majority of listeners know him from the Harry Potter films. I've also seen him in Galaxy Quest. But here, he is every bit as charming as Willis in the nefarious role of Hans Gruber. Yes, in a different way, he's still playing comedy, and the strength of it is that we do like to laugh at this guy. There is so much about him. Even though he's slick and cool and threatening, I mostly perceive him as a character of comedy, an inept Euro trash, if you will, who we know is going to get his comeuppance. It's funny you bring up comedy because that's one of the things. Now, you said in the book they're more straight-up terrorists. Here we find out. That's just an act. They're really just trying to rob the place. And that was a conscious decision by the writers because they felt to do a terrorist story was too dark and too heavy for this. And they wanted to keep it lighter. So they just made them burglars more or less instead. And it's definitely contrasting Willis with his wife beater with these Euro trash guys with their ponytails and their designer glasses and cigarettes. It does bring a certain lightness to the film. It depoliticize it. It'd be one thing if this were an American oil company with people coming in and saying what they're doing in South America is wrong. That might bring up a lot of emotions in people that are watching it. Here, because it's not even an American company and it's Euro trash that are attacking it, we're not thinking about any political ramifications at all. They smartly dodge all of that. You know what I noticed on this viewing that I've not noticed before? And like Jacob, I've seen this movie more times than I could ever count. I may well be in the three digits. Wow, I think this might be my third. (laughs) It was one that was just always on in college and always on on video. But this is McTiernan's follow-up film to Predator. The way I looked at it this time is this movie is almost the anti-Predator. Because Predator, you're in a jungle, and here you're in an urban landscape. You're in L.A., you're in a building. And in Predator, you have this team of elite soldiers, all of whom have a unique skill, who go out as a task force into the jungle where they're hunted down one by one by the Predator. Well, here, the elite team is Hans Gruber's team. He's got the hacker, he's got the gunman, he's got the electrician, he's got the driver, every bit as specialized as Dutch's team from Predator. And then, who's the Predator? Bruce Willis, who's one by one taking them out. I hadn't thought about it that way, but you're right. It kind of plays as a Predator redo with us rooting for the Predator. Yeah, that's the interesting thing is that 
Willis doesn't push the action here. That's all by the bad guys. Usually we think of the hero pushing the action. Here, it's the bad guys going out, doing everything, and it's Willis in the background just taking him out one at a time. He's more of the antagonist, you could say, here in this film than a protagonist. Really, it's the German terrorists that are pushing the storyline along. Yeah, but the one thing that Predator and Die Hard have very much in common, and I'm going to cite the director, credit him for this, is that they make the location the star. You can say all you want about Bruce Willis being the star, and, and you're right. He is the star of this film, the human star, but the real star of this movie is the Nakatomi Plaza. It is the way that they use the geography, it's the way that it's filmed, the way that they tell us how different floors interact with one another. That is what the Die Hard formula is. When they do this repeatedly, Die Hard on a bus, we understand what that means because it is about the location. It doesn't matter who's starring in the piece. It's going to be some cocky guy who's going to be your star. But what makes it die hard is the fact that it's happening in a contained environment that's thrilling to explore. In fact, it's such a star of the film. It's one of the things that I miss about L.A. Every time I drove by the Fox Plaza, I got this warm feeling. That's the die hard building. It's something I miss now that I've moved out of L.A. and it's just a building. On one of my visits, Stuart took me out there and I was like, oh, yeah, that is very recognizable. Yeah. And not a lot has changed. They haven't done a lot of remodeling. You can see a lot of what's going on in this movie identically now, if you're allowed in. I agree that putting it in the building really did help give it atmosphere and the way that they use the building, the way the story's told. You say that this is fairly faithful to the original book, though? Absolutely. Almost every scene is identical. See, that's remarkable to me because a lot of this feels like opportunity that, hey, we have this here. Let's utilize it this way. I do realize that not all of it was practical locations, but it's astounding that that actually all was based on the page. Like I said, it's just the fact that they've changed it from an American company to a Japanese company. There's little nuances to that. But yeah, the 40 floors, all of that, it's identical. And what I love is the fact that this would be pretty confusing in the hands of a lesser director. We wouldn't know where we were. We would just sort of get off on the action moments, things exploding. That's oftentimes what I see in action movies. Bad directors or mediocre directors getting by on their pyrotechnics. This is a filmmaker telling you a story. And because of such, he has all sorts of clues to always let you know where you are in the story. We know that the big Christmas party is happening on 30. And so every time we see that large group of people, we know where we're at. We know that he takes an executive up to the 40th floor and blows him away. And that blood splatter on the wall is going to tell you we're on the 40th floor. We know that there's a nudie magazine on one floor. They just have such great ways of stamping it without having to resort to a sign that says floor 32. They have such a good way of setting up the location that we feel like we have a way to be invested. I do, anyway. As someone that doesn't really care about the number of explosions I see, as someone that's not the action guy, I become the action guy because of the way they've told this tale and set up this building to play out. Here I'm going to disagree with you. A lot of it was distinct, but in watching it, I get a little confused. I find it hard to follow which of the unfinished floors he's on. It wasn't until doing some background research and listening to some commentaries that I realized that that boardroom wasn't just down the hallway from the others where the hostages were. I didn't get each floor having its own distinct personality. I would honestly say I got a better sense of place out of the boat in Friday the 13th Part 8 
than I did out of the different floors of this building. Oh, Lord. I don't know what that means, Arnie, but I'm siding with Stuart here. Like, I feel each floor... Has a distinct personality. You have the main lobby with the waterfall where the party's going on. You have the different office buildings, the main one with the scale models. You have the floor that's under construction, has the steel beams. You got the floor that's all computers and glass. You have the roof. You have the elevator shaft. For talking about the building being a character, I feel like they really define this character well in this film, where I'm able to follow along without having to see a elevator button pushed every time or see the number of the floor on the staircase door as they go through it. I will agree, though, Stuart, there is something about this that makes it an action film for people who don't just like explosions. I'm not necessarily, though, going to say it's the building. I'm going to give a lot of credit to the cinematography and Jan de Bond. And you'll hear no argument from me. This is expertly shot. Yeah, this is just a great movie. This is my first time watching it in maybe a decade. I honestly can't remember the last time I saw it. It was certainly before the last travesty of a diehard film. And watching it this time and seeing what they're doing with the camera movements and with the cuts and with the shots and the angles, everything they're doing here is really drawing me in and making me feel excited to be part of this action. So while I didn't get it from the building, I definitely got it from the overall visual style. And some of the things you're talking about, I think, are a result more of lighting and cinematography than of set design. And a lot of the way this was shot, Arnie, edited in the cinematography, one of its influences was actually another favorite of mine, Robocop. Vorhoven, when he shot that, he brought over a lot of European style working the camera and that that was different than American cinematography, and they adapted to that. I'm not as well versed in all these different European versus American shots, but this does have a different feel to it. Not even knowing that cinematic history, I get that feeling that this is shot different than your typical average American action film. Well, part of it is that they decide to let the camera do its job. There's a lot of tracking shots in this. There's a lot of uncut shots. A lot of action movies, the lazy, the mediocre directors just, we'll fix it in post. We'll just put in loud sound effects and we'll cut around it. Here, this camera moves. Right when we start, we are introduced to a lot of characters. It roves from office to office and we see what's going on. We see couples having sex on the desk. We see people hiding in closets. It allows a realism and an investment that works so much more for me than if they were just cutting from here to there to there and being disoriented. I'm never disoriented in this movie, and it's key. It's everything for me that I know where things are happening. John DeBont would go on to be a somewhat notable director himself. I don't know what I would think of the movies, but Speed was a very big hit, and he lensed a lot of Warhoven movies. And hopefully things stay on track and we get to finally talk about RoboCop next year. Speed. Well, <laughs> we'll see. But you talk about action. This film has some astounding action. And you talk about screenwriting, Jacob. One thing that I feel this movie does so well is its pacing. Because we get just enough time to get into these characters, get into their world, and we see the truck rolling up with the terrorists. And boom, this movie takes off like a rocket and does not stop. We get a hundred minutes of almost intense action the entire time and spectacle beyond spectacle and always in such a way that it is exciting and never feels repetitive to me. Whether Bruce Willis is knocking a guy through plaster in an unfinished wall or chaining him up or shooting him through a table, all of these scenes 
have this visceral feel to them that just drag me in and entertain the living hell out of me. Yeah, it never feels like they repeat the same trick here. You'll have a fight where they're rolling down the stairs, and later there's a fight where, I don't know, they're chaining each other up and swinging each other to and fro in a room, shooting through tables, shooting through glass. Yes, there's lots of guns and lots of explosions, but they keep changing it up every time, and, and it keeps it fresh. It doesn't feel stale. It feels like they really want to tell a story that's exciting and that the action is always being amped up. And I do feel like that's important because one of the things that's difficult is that there's 13 terrorists and keeping track of all of them is a little bit different. I think the movie and the script really structure it in a way that I can more or less remember most of them. But there's a lot of guys that Bruce has to kill here and they wisely usually pair them up after the first kill in which he famously breaks the guy's neck and then sends him down in the elevator wearing the ho-ho-ho-now-I-have-a-machine-gun shirt. When Bruce is taking out people, he's usually doing it in pairs, and we know when we see the two people that these are the enemies that he's going to fight. That was helpful for me, because really, other than the fact that you had the cowboy guy down at the desk, the black guy that was cracking the vault codes, and the blonde guy whose brother died, I really had trouble with following all these sub-terrorists. What I always find funny is there's the scene at the end on the roof where the guy who's vaguely Asian with the Fu Manchu mustache gets shot. And I'm like, oh, he's still alive? He just (laughs) looks like the kind of thug that I would have expected to die a lot earlier. I just always wondered what he was doing with the Germans. (laughs) Well, you know, they hired his skill sets. I appreciate that he didn't do any kung fu. That was a surprise. (laughs) Yes, he eats a baby Ruth while they take out the FBI SWAT teams. I'm surprised that they didn't go more multi-ethnic just to help make the terrorists more distinct. You do have a lot of six-foot-six blondes. Yeah, they're mostly Germans, and this is an offshoot of a real German organization. They were kind of tying into real life here with Gruber's Past Association. He was a splinter group, and most of them, yes, are your typical Aryans. That's a safe bad guy, always, really. Anything vaguely Aryan, Nazi-affiliated, Americans are always comfortable with that as a bad guy. But if the terrorists are the picture of cool, calm perfection and... God knows one of the great things about Gruber, one of the things I love about his character is he's so much of a chess player. He's seeing things so many moves out and has everything planned for. But to contrast that, we have the picture of ineptness in the LAPD. Yes, of course. An easy target. We know we're in trouble when Willis finally gets help out there. They've taken over the 30th floor. He's made it up. He's tried to set off the fire alarm. That didn't work. They got called off. He finally gets some women on the line and they don't want to help out, but they finally patch him through and they send one black and white to go out and investigate. And it's the dad from Family Matters. Come on, Reginald Val Johnson. He's a cop in everything. You don't get more season than this guy. <laughs> and this is probably what got him Family Matters. Actually, it's his role as the cop on Perfect Strangers that got him the spinoff Family Matters. But I digress. This is where I knew him from when Family Matters came up before he was second fiddle to Urkel. He was second fiddle to David from Moonlighting. Yes, indeed. It's fitting, really. It's all the ABC family. Yes. And he's introduced, of course, he's overweight. He's buying junk food. He's lying to the cashier saying it's for his wife. We get the sense that he's not really a serious threat to anybody, much less these highly organized 13 men that have taken over the plaza. Indeed, he would have been happy to walk away and see none of it if Willis hadn't done one of his most famous stunts with Marco. Yeah, another great scene the way that the 
body crashes down on the car and then Bruce Willis shoots him with the Uzi. Later on, the assistant police chief says to Al, how do we know he's not the one who shot up your car? Well, he is the one who shot up his car. I'm sorry, Willis went a bit overboard getting his attention. I think if you dropped a dead body on the car, that would be enough. How did he not kill Al in this scene? I mean, he blows that car up. Al goes flying off of some embankment, crashes the car backwards. Like, it was a little overboard. But at the same time, Al has this really cranky boss that's very cynical about everything. Dwayne Robinson, he said, well, maybe that guy was just an unhappy stockbroker that jumped. He was even willing to dismiss the body that fell out of there. He really does think this is the work of a lone man. Or maybe he just doesn't want to work very hard on Christmas Eve. I can't decide it. But when we see Al and when we see his boss showing up here, we know that outside forces just aren't going to be much help. Maybe some comic relief, but certainly they're not going to be any match for Hans. And that boss, Paul Gleason, probably best known as the principal from The Breakfast Club, basically playing the exact same role here. Yes, I was thinking that. I wasn't sure. He was in The Breakfast Club. I'm like, I think he was in The Breakfast Club. Yes. Yeah, after he takes care of McLean, he then has to deal with Bender in detention. Mm -hmm. And another one of my favorite nefarious actors from the 80s is in this. William Atherton. Probably most people know him from Ghostbusters, Templeton, Pencil Dick Peck. I know him from Real Genius. (laughs) I knew it. Does he ever play a nice role? He's like a jerk in everything, isn't he? And he's such a great jerk that I'm surprised. I had to look him up. I did see him in Biodome in the 90s, and that's like the only time I've seen him pop up ever since the 80s. But yeah, he still is around doing TV roles here and there. But he is just a great slimy guy. I feel like everyone in this movie got typecast. Al got typecast. Willis got typecast. This guy got typecast. It's because this movie burns such a hole on your brain that, yeah, you just can't see them any other way than they're in this movie. It is what I visualize when I think of this guy is, yeah, he's the slimy sleazebag tabloid reporter here. To be fair, he's just trying to report a story. He isn't really trying to disrupt the police work. He's not trying to jeopardize Willis or his wife's life, but indirectly, he is putting them more and more in danger the closer he gets to finding out who this unknown aggravation is in the Nakatomi Plaza. That's what I like about this film, is that this is how it would play out, wouldn't it? The media would get involved, they want to start digging up all the dirt, even more so today. This is back late 80s, it would be even crazier today, but it feels sensational and they feel like types almost because they're so slimy or the main cop's such a jerk. But it also feels real in a sense that, yes, this is what the media would do. They'd try to dig everything up and they'd actually put everyone in danger. Well, the one thing I think here is that he went too far when he went to the house and interviewed the little girl. But I do also feel this is a bit of a commentary. I think Jan Dupin isn't the only thing McTiernan took from Verhoeven because you look at Robocop and it's commentary on the media. This is a more realistic current 80s day take on that. But yeah, this is something that almost was predating when this kind of tabloid journalism and the stalkerazzi would really become a part of it in today's culture. They were ahead of the curve, no doubt about it. Yeah, in five more years, the media was always the whipped one in any movie. They were always playing this role. Maybe this movie helped form that opinion. But I also think real life 
had to form that opinion. There was so much tabloid journalism in the 90s. And yeah, it's just easy to see that this guy would go on ha- to have a career with Peraldo or on a current affair or hard copy, any of those trashy shows. He would have been the one at the OJ trial sticking the mic in the victims' faces. We can't help but hate him, but I have to remind myself that he's really not a bad guy. He's trying to do his job. Yeah, I think you're too empathetic. He goes above and beyond his job. The people doing their job are sitting there talking about Helsinki Syndrome. He's looking up the kids. Yeah, he's threatening to deport the maid. I'm all for Holly when she punches this guy out. Admittedly, he's a bad guy. That's what I mean. The movie sells us he's a bad guy, but I can understand what he drives to. And you cite those other people. I think they look foolish with their quote-unquote expert opinion on what the psychology of terrorism is. This guy's at least trying to find out what's going on, and it just so happens that it's counterproductive to what the police are trying to do. And then the FBI get involved, and they're going to write things, right? Agent Johnson and Special Agent Johnson? Well, again, that's telling us right away that these are comical characters, that they are no match for what we are seeing. The fact that they're Johnson and Johnson, and they're tougher, admittedly. They pack a lot more machismo, but no, come on. We know that they're not going to solve the problem either. Obviously, the only help that's going to come to Willis is from within. It's not these guys. I'm sure there are movies before this where the FBI comes, takes over a case, and there's that whole tension with the cops, but this one just does it so well. This is the standard bearer for me. When Johnson and Johnson come in, they're flying helicopters saying it's like NOM. One of the things I love is when they send in the SWAT team, one of the SWAT members gets pricked by a rose thorn. He's, ouch! Again, it's playing this line of action, of seriousness, of danger, of humor, and it just does it so well. A lot of times films have problems with balancing these different tonal shifts, but not here. And if there's any similarity between this movie and the one last week, is that both films really do characterize the police as an aggressor, as not a help, as out of touch with what's going on here. That even when the quote-unquote tougher guys take over, we know it's not going well. They're the ones that actually try to shoot up Willis on the rooftop. I had forgotten that part. Of course, one of the big famous moments in the movie is Willis strapping on a fire hose and leaping off the edge and smashing through a window. I thought that he was evading terrorist attacks, but no, he's trying to avoid Johnson and Johnson. <laughs> Actually, he is avoiding the terrorist attack. They'd strap the plastic explosive to the roof and they're detonating that, trying to kill the hostages and they take out Johnson and Johnson in the process. Yeah, but Johnson and Johnson, they're not helping out. They've identified him as one of the terrorists. They're firing at him. And they even talked about, oh, 25% casualty. That's acceptable. You know they're just going to go in guns blazing. They've already discussed it. And they don't have a problem who they're shooting at. Mm-hmm. My absolute favorite moment from the entire film comes at this point, too. When he finally shoots through the glass and lands up inside, we all breathe a sigh of relief. And then the drum that's holding the hose goes falling by and he's pulled out the window. And the fact, again, the cinematography, the fact that the camera goes with him as he's moving towards the edge. Man, that's a seat grabber. I was just grabbing the armrest going, wow, this is how you do action. This is how you get me invested in an action movie. You film it well. Was old Blue Eyes jumping off the building, running around barefooted with glass in his feet in the book? Yes. Yes. Ah, All of this is very, very similar. There's going to be something else that I like about this beyond just how it's shot, and that is that this has a sense of realism to it. Yes, it is extreme realism, but there's nothing I'm sitting here watching and going, bullshit. 
this, what you're discussing is the closest thing that comes because I do think that that wheel would be so damn heavy that he'd probably just be sucked right out of the window immediately. But that is the only thing I can cite in the least as outside of any realm of plausibility. Well, I like plausibility in action. You've heard me say that about Nolan and the Batman series. And yeah, I guess that's why I'm going with this one. If my comparatives were early films of Schwarzenegger and Stallone, Terminator excluded, yeah, I would say that those films are ridiculous to me. I wouldn't even watch them. If this were a Commando sequel, I wouldn't be on this podcast. I don't think you necessarily need realism in an action film. But for this story that they're telling, it works. If you're trying to tell a story about this everyday man that happens to be a cop, it works for him to be doing normal. Maybe you're more slightly physical and built, but still stuff that's not out of the possibility of imagination that a real person could do. It helps sell the character. It does for me, for sure. Absolutely. And it helps you feel for him when he is hobbled with all the glass. That's one of Gruber's best moments is Gruber affects an American accent and they get a couple of minutes together facing off in the bowels of the building and McLean hadn't seen Han's face at that point and Hans had no clue who McLean was, so when they run into each other while Hans is checking the detonators, they get this little bit of a moment to face off, and he sees that McLean's barefoot, says shoot the glass. It just adds realism that you have a hero who cannot just get slightly hurt, but seriously injured and is dragging blood everywhere. Yeah, Arnold Schwarzenegger would never have run barefoot over glass and fallen over and said that hurts. You're right. This is the key decisions that are being made to say, let's turn it down a notch. You guys keep wanting to say realism. It's not realism, but it is a deflation of the super action star that they have been pummeling with, with Chuck Norris, with Arnold, with all of those guys. Yeah, it is something a little more naturalistic, realistic, no, but yeah, it's what makes me want to care. It's more relatable. Like when you see an action star get shot with a bullet, most of us haven't been shot with a bullet. We don't flinch, but you see a guy get kicked in the balls. We all grab our crotches in pain. <laughs> we can relate. And I think most of us have stepped on a nail or a piece of glass, cut our foot. We know that hurts. So seeing this guy having to walk through this glass, it's more relatable to us. It's easier to empathize with the pain that he's going through. And you said people laughed at the title and really never gave the title a whole lot of thought. It's been around for more than half of my life, so it's just what Die Hard is. But you look at how Bruce Willis is looking at the end of this film. This guy is beat to living shit. When he's going for that final showdown against Hans and the other guy, the cowboy guy, he can barely walk, he can barely talk, he can barely move. He really does take a licking and keep on ticking. I love when Holly finally sees him and she's just like, Jesus. Like, she cannot believe what he's gone through, what he looks like, covered in dirt and blood and cut out. I mean, it, it's a great scene that sells it. I like that, but I like the fact that she hasn't seen him for all of this movie. We keep cutting back to Holly, and it's kind of a suspense thing, because on her desk is a picture of her and John, and they don't know that she's related. If they did know that, they could point a gun at her, and Willis would have to give it all up. He would have to throw in the towel, because we know that he wouldn't keep up this game if Holly's life were at stake. 
One of my other favorite scenes with her is when Carl comes downstairs after some skirmish and is breaking things. She's like, that's John. I know he's still alive. No one else in the world can make someone so mad. I mean, it brings us back to that whole divorce thing and how angry she must have been with him. And we're seeing how, in a different circumstance, the jerk that he can be as a husband is helpful <laughs> when you're being besieged by terrorists. Yeah, I kind of feel Holly does get short shrift. We get a few scenes of her negotiating for bathroom privileges for the hostages and things, but she's just there often enough to remind us she's there, if that makes sense. I do like the scenes that she does get because, again, I get this relationship. I get why her and John are getting divorced. Han says, what idiot put you in charge? And she says, you did. She's a lot like her husband. This film isn't about her, but I do like these scenes that we get with her. She is very commanding. Yeah, agreed. I think she's used in just the right way. I wouldn't want any less of her here. And she does provide sort of another thorn or problem with her co-worker, Ellis. In the book, this is Joe Leland's daughter, and she's actually having a sexual relationship with this man. They're doing cocaine together, and Joe comes into this, and he's not happy at all. It all plays out the same way here in the movie that it does in the book, but they sort of back off a little bit here. We get the sense that Ellis has designs on Holly, but Holly so far has said no to his offers. Maybe if she were completely divorced, she might go with him, or maybe not. But I do like the way that it brings Ellis into the equation. Ellis, you said that all these actors went on to do other stuff. Here's one who I can't believe I never saw again, other than in that Batman thing we did last year. I was about to say, we heard him again, Mask of Phantasm. He's the voice of the suit in that movie. The 80s ended. He plays a really good cocaine addict yuppie of the 80s. And well, that time had passed. What else is he going to do? We'll see him again in Supergirl. <laughs> oh, but I like him because he's not only a threat to the marriage, which is the foundation of this relationship stuff here, but he's a threat because he's trying to get Willis to stop. And Willis knows that as he's talking, he is going to get killed. Would he stop doing what he's doing to save this guy's life? Well, ultimately, he makes the right decision. He knows it wouldn't make a difference either way. But this changes the situation, too. When they kill Alice, now the cops really perceive Willis as being unhelpful and rogue. That is another good scene. I like it quite a bit. It's the scene that makes Ellis memorable. The early scenes, very forgettable, but when he goes in and tries to negotiate, but he's not a total ass. He does protect Holly still. Well, he likes Holly. He wants to do more than protect Holly. So I don't know how noble that is. He's not the white knight he claims to be. But yeah, I think he sort of works as a parody of an L.A. suit. A fast-talking, big-smile, cocaine-sniffing creep that's destined to fail. Meanwhile, while all of this is going on, the real plot is unfolding. Now, I'm unclear as we're going through here. What do we know about what's in the contents of this vault? I know from memory and from reading the book what's inside is a bunch of money, but we don't really understand fully what's going on until the seventh lock is broken. But we talk about the FBI guys. The FBI guys were necessary because they can do the one thing that nobody else can because there's a lock that you can only open by cutting the power grid. I don't quite get how useful that lock is. So there's like, what, seven locks to the safe. They've been using a drill to get through six of them, but that seventh one... Well, the first one was password protected. And that's the right. computer guy, that's really all he's really there to do, is get through that. And as a computer guy, I'm kind of pissed off how he cracks it. He's like, I can crack it in 30 minutes. I'm like, do you have an algorithm? What's going to do it? Oh, no, you're just sitting there hunting, pecking, and guessing? <laughs> 
He's just typing up. He's looking up historical facts about the dead leader of the corporation. And it's like, well, he served in this battle. Nope, that's not it. His name translates to Red Castle. Bing. Yep. <laughs> oh, suit me up, Uncle Alfred. That's terrible. <laughs> All right. I'm taking back some of the compliments I've given this script. <laughs> and then it's just about manpower and muscle to drill through the next five. But yeah, the last one, he doesn't even know how it's going to open. This final lock from what I understand, is apparently there is some magical hard wire from that safe under the Pacific Ocean all the way to Japan, where it has to be unlocked. But if they cut off the power, it will just open up. It's electromagnetic, so therefore the elect part of it is what's making it impenetrable. They can't drill through that. But (laughs) where is it? Japan is how they have to unlock the safe? It's a Japanese corporation, and this is why they interrogate Takaji at the beginning of the film and ask him for the code, and he's like, I don't have it, I can't get it, it's in Japan. And they finally just shoot him. It has to be unlocked in Japan. I guess if they knew the phone number, they could call the guy and maybe get it done? I want to know how they got anything in the safe. It seems like this safe, even the employees, could never get in there. But you can if you have the FBI cut the power to the grid releasing the 600 and some odd million in bearer bonds. Same plot device from Beverly Hills Cop. Are bearer bonds real? Can people just steal those like they're cash? I just see them in so many movies. If anyone has that piece of paper, you could cash it in. I don't know. None of us as podcasters are wealthy enough to know if any of our listeners would like to send us a bearer bond. We'll take it. We'll let you know if we could cash it. <laughs> Donation series is starting up in a couple months. PayPal or bearer bonds in Deutschmarks in the millions. <laughs> yeah, I don't understand how the building can have a generator to have emergency power, and yet this is not protected by the emergency power. One would think that this would be the thing they'd most value keeping power to if indeed loss of electricity means that bad guys can get in here. But hey, we had to have something fun. We were in suspense how they were going to crack this last one. It was ironic that the feds play into Han's plan. It makes Han's look really, really smart, makes the feds look really, really dumb. I go with it. The one thing I didn't get until this watching, though, is that this safe, this impenetrable electromagnetic safe, is on the 30th floor of a building. Saves are usually in basements because they have to be right against the foundation because they are so fucking heavy that they will cave in the floor. I always thought all these times when Hans was radioing the hacker guy that the hacker guy was actually in the basement beneath the cowboy on the first floor going back and forth with the drill. It's this time when I realized, wait, they're still unloading the bearer bonds and later Hans is falling out a window right near the safe that all of that's on the 30th floor. Again, the spatial relations of the building kind of fail me. So however this safe works, it finally opens up and... Throughout this film, we've had Beethoven's Ninth, the Ode to Joy, going on, and we get it blasting here. It's kind of been in the background. We've had Hans humming it. And again, another very memorable piece of this film is the use of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. I had that ruined for me by the Stars Network a few years later. Movies, 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 movies. When I want movies, I want to see stars. <laughs> so now that's all I hear when I'm watching Die Hard. Stars is movies, always movies, 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 movies. Wow, what a great way to kill classic music. Some people would say Die Hard to ruin the song for you, but all right. Die Hard got me into classical music because of its use here. <laughs> it's not just classical music, too. I think they did a very canny thing by extrapolating a lot of Christmas carols. Let It Snow and 
It's a really good thunderous score, but every now and then they use little stings from well-known Christmas things. I think I might have forgotten that this was Christmas time, even though every now and then we see a tree or a lighted Santa or something. For the most part, because it's L.A., because there is no snow, we might forget that it's this holiday that's happening here. The music never lets us do that. I have a problem with the score, but we'll get to that a little bit later. It's at the very end of the film. But after two hours, we get our final showdown. Holly is held hostage. John's limping in. And we get a call back to the movie's most famous line as just before shooting him, instead of taking the shot, Hans makes the James Bond villain foible of talking first and says his line back to him. yippee Kaye, motherfucker. Love how he says it. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. It's funny to watch him mangle that. But that was one of the things I learned about this viewing. That was one of the things I couldn't remember. I thought it was just something clever that Willis came up with to say. But this guy had been chiding him about pretending to be an American action hero. He's ironically calling this future action star ridiculous for trying to posture in that way. And Willis embraces it. He ends up calling himself Roy for Roy Rogers. This is Roy Rogers' tag. yippee yeah, I do like how this is kind of a throwback to that. And that end Mexican standoff is a throwback to the Westerns as well. He even says Grace Kelly and Gary Cooper, the stars of High Noon. I'm not a huge fan of Westerns, but I do like the way it's used here to kind of represent Americana against these European values. Of course, the thing I like about Hans is his classical education and his classical music. I think that's what makes him more likable than your average thug. Isn't that what every European does when they want to make fun of an American is call him a cowboy? George W. Bush, he was the cowboy president. Again, it feels what would naturally happen, like we've said with other characters like William Atherton in the media. You have these Euro trash villains, and yes, they're going to make fun of the cowboy American. Of course, Willis only has two bullets, so he knocks out one guy. I don't even think he kills Kristoff, but shoots Eddie and shoots Hans in spectacular fashion. And I think he gives Eddie the kill shot, but Hans, he has to kind of graze because he was holding Holly hostage, which leads him to fall backwards out the window. And that's just such a memorable fall. And I always felt like falls never work. Even the next year when Tim Burton did Batman and the Joker takes his fall. I'm like, that looks so cheap. I've always liked this fall. I've always thought Rickman had a great facial expression. I now know why. They dropped him early. Yes. They told him they'd drop him on three. They dropped him on one. And he was really shitting himself. He was not happy about that. And the other thing is you see this body falling. That was an actual stuntman that jumped 32 floors down onto an air pad, obviously. But usually we're used to seeing dummies fall. That's a real dude falling down all that way. I wondered how they got him to kick and flail. I'm like, is that an animatronic? Yeah, given the state of things at the time, it's obviously a little blue screen when we're looking down at the actor, but it's a very convincing and needed kill. We needed him to have the worst death of all, and he gets it. It's pretty final when we see him falling out the window. Big difference between this and the book, he took the daughter with him. It ends on a dark note, a novel. Holly, if they were going to stay true to this, would have gone out with him. But instead, she just loses her Rolex. And that's something that I also got just this watch, no pun intended, was early on, Ellis is talking about her Rolex and how John will see it later. I never got until this one that Hans was holding on to her Rolex, the symbol of wealth and the symbol of her business. And John has to take off her Rolex in order to get back his wife. I wonder if there's some anti-feminist 
thing there. She had to choose the Rolex or the husband. The husband removes the Rolex and kills the terrorist in doing so. If not anti-feminist, I do feel like this movie is about the white man reasserting his might here. Not just with the marriage and the divorce thing. He does get his way. Holly does have to choose him over the job, but also just about taking on this Asian company. And I don't know, in some ways, I feel like this movie with its imagery of helicopters and crawling through shafts and all is like a replay of the Vietnam War in some ways. It was big in the 80s to do that. I think you're on to something there, Arnie. I do feel like this movie is asserting conservative values. There's definitely people that have that view. The director even said his son went off to college and called him up. Dad, I just read this chapter out of a textbook. Do you know how sexist and racist you are for doing Die Hard? (laughs) I just think there's something there. But I think more to the point, they were just setting up the watch the same way they set up the taking off the shoes. But given what the watch represented, yeah, you could read into that if you're into that kind of deconstruction. If you have a college paper due tomorrow, there you go. There's your topic. I could have written it if I'd rewatched the movie with this close an eye back in the 90s. Well, she was having to pick between Job and him. He would never be able to afford that watch for her. She had obviously picked the Job up to this point. Her losing that watch, this is how we know, if we didn't guess already, because it's a Hollywood movie, that she was going to pick him and that the ending would be about her and him reuniting. It's a love story, and we needed this to happen. This is a good visual way of showing it happening before it does. Plus, Hans is all about the money, not about the ideals. What's he holding on to at the end? A really expensive watch. It really fits. I do love that there's these bonds just flying everywhere at the end. It makes it feel like it's snowing in L.A. That's kind of what's fun. They even end on Let It Snow. But where I say this film was really well written is not only the watch is set up there, but every minor character gets their moment. Who takes out the computer hacker? It's not McLean. It's not the FBI. It's Argyle the limo driver. Yeah, they had to give him something to do. They took such great pains to have him here, and I think he's mostly here for comic relief. He's mostly there to react as things are flying past him. Either he doesn't notice because he's listening to Stevie Wonder and chatting on the phone, or he's shitting himself when he finds out what kind of danger he's in. But yes, he finally has one purpose. The black computer guy has escaped and is going to sneak out in a emergency vehicle. I believe it's an ambulance. And so Argyle gets to punch somebody out. They came up with this right at the end. This script was not finished when they started filming. And they knew there was the whole idea that they're going to blow up the roof. So they thought the terrorists were dead, too. And then they were going to sneak out through this ambulance. They didn't know that until they got towards the end of the film. And they even joke about it. Would this ambulance really fit in the truck that they drive in on? But yeah, a lot of this was, hey, we got to figure out what their plot was because we're finishing the film. Argyle's down there. Oh, we're going to have him drive out in an ambulance. Let's have Argyle come in and save the day. Well, I'm glad they gave him something. And even Al, who had his little dramatic speech early on about how he shot a kid and can't draw his gun anymore. Well, Carl isn't as dead as he seemed. He comes back at the last second to shoot McLean, and Al gets his moment of glory, killing the final terrorist. Now, I remember hearing these stories as a kid. I had laser tag, and I remember hearing the stories that an actual kid was shot by a cop who's playing, like, laser tag with some friends at night at a school. 
I don't know if that's urban myth or that it really happened, but that really happened. I was a few years older than you, as you mentioned, and I read those newspaper articles when it happened. I think it was in Central Park. And there were many other instances in the 80s and 90s of kids with toy guns. This is why Han Solo's blaster is now bright orange in the store. And even the high-end prop replicas have these silly orange caps in the end is because a lot of kids did get shot. So that was topical. I didn't like the scene when they're confessing to each other, mostly because I wasn't really buying the performances. But it is kind of fun to give Al his moment. Again, another character that would only work as comic relief if he didn't have something to do right here in the end. I'm glad to see him do something. I feel like it was necessary. Yeah, I like that he gets his moment. I don't necessarily like how it comes about. This whole Carl coming back to life or he'd been faking dead the whole time and he happened to have a machine gun. I don't know how he would have had that machine gun if he's being wheeled out with cops all around. <laughs> no, no, makes no sense. It bugs me because so much of this film takes the time to set things up. This one, it's just out of nowhere. It's such a Hollywood cliche. Again, I'm sure it had happened in other films before this, but this is what I go back to of that. I guess in horror films, it happens all the time. You think Jason's dead or whatever, and he pops up one last time where you got to kill him. I'm not even really sure why Al would be here. If, in fact, he had been demoted to desk cop, why was he in a patrol call at all? It doesn't make any sense. This is a gimme. This film has earned this. This is just like the airlock scene in Alien for me. It's like, this would never happen in this way. It's ridiculous. They're pushing it too far, but we've earned it. It's been a fun ride, and we want to see this character win. Here is the one spot, though, where the score pulled me out of the movie, because it's been this ode to joy or this other minimalistic kind of score the whole time. And when Al shoots Carl, I'm like, did they take this from Wrath of Khan? And I had to look it up. I was damn close. Same composer. It was an unused cue from Aliens. This is Horner. Oh, they just had it lying around Fox and just kind of stuck it in? Yep, exactly. Well, it's like with all the gun effects, they didn't want to use the old sound banks that most movies had used. They actually took, when RoboCop was done, they filmed all new gun blasts and that, and they took it from that. So yes, they were borrowing sound effects and music cues from other films. Listen to it again. As an Aliens fan, Stuart, you will know these horns do not sound like anything else anywhere in the score. And this time, because I was enjoying the Ode to Joy so much, when we hear this big bomb, 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 ba da da bomb, I thought that Kirk and Khan were in the nebula. It really pulled me out this time. It was too big for this movie, and too big for that moment. If I was going to hear that music, that music needed to come when Hans was falling out of the window. And then the final moment, even Bonnie Bedelia gets something to do as she punches out the reporter, which... Everyone loves that moment. Yeah. Why wouldn't you? All the characters that we've liked have finally gotten to hit somebody. <laughs> and that's what I'm saying about being the right amount of tightly written. Every character gets their moment to shine here at the end. Despite being Bruce Willis on the poster, every character has their moment. And I really enjoy all the payoffs. It's just such a satisfying experience. So, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Die Hard? Jacob. Oh, come on. It's obvious I recommend Die Hard. Here's the thing. I think this is why this movie is so special to me. Ever since I was a little kid, and I think all of us have had varying 
aspirations to write movies or whatever. That's why we're doing now playing because we are interested in movies. I remember ever since I was a little kid, you know, I think Indiana Jones was the first movie I saw where I'm like, oh, I want to write a script and make a movie like that. And when I was real young, my scripts would basically just be copying the film I had just seen. But after I saw Die Hard, it really taught me the language of action films of storytelling, period. Like I said, Chekhov's gun, I didn't understand, I didn't know what that term was, but to be able to set something up at the beginning of the film, like, hey, you need to take your shoes off and curl your toes, that that had to pay off later in the film. Or that if you had a backstory scene where two characters are having this heartfelt moment where Al accidentally shot a kid, that you'd have to have some redeeming moment later on where he comes to terms with it. And you have to have a tagline like yippee-ki-yay. This is the film I go back to that taught me all these devices, and it's when I really noticed in my writing that I was able to not just copy what I had seen, but I could start to understand the rules and create something new. And I think the big joke is die hard in a blank. Because this formula, and it is a formula, it's become a formula, well, it's a really good formula. That's why people keep going back to it. I don't think it's ever been topped as good as the original. What about Chill Factor? It's Die Hard in an Ice Cream Truck. (laughs) I love how swarmy Willis is and what a different kind of action hero he is than what we had seen before. The action is just great. The cut-up feet, jumping from the building as the roof explodes. It's an exciting film. It's a well-written film. This is one of my top films. Strongest of recommends. Stuart. Yeah, it's unassailable that this is strong filmmaking. And as such, it elevates the whole genre for me. I think of most of 80s action films as something that I wasn't really in at the time and would not go back to now. You're not going to catch me on the American Ninja retrospective. But this is great filmmaking, and this is a great movie. And this made Bruce Willis a movie star. And I don't think this is his best performance, but I totally get his appeal. I think he would go on to do much better stuff. I'm going to hold it to this. The weak link for me still is that I can see him struggling to get through this one. That The greenness is still on him. But he gets through it, and I feel like he's aided immeasurably by great direction, great cinematography, great supporting cast, great stunts, all around, no, a very, very strong movie. Let me put it this way. I saw this cynically the year later on videotape, thinking it wasn't going to be much. I was there opening weekend for Die Hard 2 in movie theaters. Recommend. And I, of course, recommend this movie. I You couldn't tell from what I've been saying for the past hour or so of podcast, but I want to just echo what I've said before and what my co-hosts here have said is this movie is expertly written, expertly paced, expertly shot. I only disagree with Stuart in that I think Willis captivates. This is Willis's film. Everyone gets their moment, but if you don't click with Willis, you can't click with this movie. And I am completely there. I was biased going in to click with Willis because I thought he was charismatic on Moonlighting, but he just took that to the next level here. This is the film that to this day makes his career. That's why he goes back to the well. When he does some other cop dramas and films that don't click, he comes back to remind his audience, hey, remember me? I was in Die Hard. You like Die Hard. But I take this recommend to the next level. Recently, we were asked on Facebook, what were the top 10 movies that we've reviewed for now playing? What are just the top 10 ones? And I have trouble with lists, but if you just throw top 10, I can try to pick 10 and not put them in any order. Something from that list is getting bumped. This is definitely one of the top five films that I've ever gotten to review for now playing. I didn't remember how tight and how fun this movie was 
coming in to watch it for this. I just had caught glimpses here and there. It is on TV all the time, and I'll turn it on and see a scene here or see a scene there. But I couldn't recall the last time I'd watched this film beginning to end. And I did not recognize it for just how tight and fun this thing is start to finish. The strongest of recommends. If you haven't seen this, why the hell not? Go see it now. So Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And a reminder to our listeners, you can head to the archives at nowplayingpodcast.com where you can hear the first podcast in our Die Hard series. This wasn't it. Hear all about a Frank Sinatra <laughs> film, The Detective, as well as all of our other retrospective series. We've been doing this for over five years. There's over 300 movie reviews in the archives section at nowplayingpodcast.com, including John McTiernan's Predator, as well as Aliens vs. Predator. And you can head to Books and Nachos, where, Stuart, you are reviewing the Die Hard books. That's right. Even Die Hard 2 was based on a novel. And oddly enough, it wasn't written by the guy that wrote the first two. It's an entirely different character than Joe Leland from The Detective and Nothing Lasts Forever. But I will be reviewing that this week. And also a reminder, we still have a very limited number of now-playing DVDs, 5th Anniversary, 3 DVD ROM sets available. These have all the podcasts we've ever done, bonus material like behind-the-podcast interviews, lost podcasts, extended podcasts, an uncut version of our Star Trek 2009 podcast, and so much more, all available only on this DVD. And once these DVDs are gone, they are gone. So find the details by clicking the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. And we will be back next week with our review of Die Hard 2. So thanks for coming to the party, pal! You know what you get for being a hero? Nothing. Get shot at. Get a little pat on the back, blah, blah, blah. a boy. Get divorced. A wife can't remember your last name. Kids don't want to talk to you. You have to eat a lot of meals by yourself. Trust me, kid, nobody wants to be that guy. Then why are you doing this? Because there's nobody else to do it right now, that's why. Believe me, if there was somebody else to do it, I would let them do it, but there's not. So we're doing it. That's what makes you that guy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. Congratulations, you're still alive. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can hear more reviews at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Get ready for the downloads. You can hear reviews of Terminator, Predator, The Avengers, Batman, James Bond, Rambo, Rocky, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. Watch the downloads. While at nowplayingpodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. Baby, come on. Come to Papa, I'll kiss your fucking Dalmatian. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. This gentleman, as they say, is where the plot thickens. The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Mother the coast, we get together, have a few laughs. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You like it, huh? How about you give me 20 bucks for it? But I let you live. Man knows how to bark. 
You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Money. What kind of terrorist are you? <laughs> Who said we were terrorists? You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy panties, coffee mugs, t-shirts, totes, boxers, teddy bears, and much more. They're for my wife. Yeah. Bag it. Big time. Now Playing's Die Hard Retrospective Series is edited by Ray, Phil, Dylan, Jeff, and Arnie. I'll be damned if I'm going to clean up this mess! <laughs> now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. You're very impressed with yourself, aren't you? I have my moments. Now Playing is not affiliated with 20th Century Fox. The Detective and Die Hard films are the property of 20th Century Fox, and no infringement is intended. Listen, uh, you're not pissing in somebody's pool, are you? (laughs) Yeah, and I'm fresh out of chlorine. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. That was unpleasant. Don't let it happen again. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production copyright 2013, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Non-compliance will result in a penalty. Happy trails, Hans. This is Jacob, and I'm ready to podcast hard. We can give you a little lube in five minutes to take care of that. Every so five years or so. Oops. Yikes. (laughs) Knocks his water bottle over. No, no, no. Something fell off the wall. (laughs) Oh, okay. Some kind of poltergeist. It's die hard in an L.A. apartment. Motherfucker. It is about Jesus, so technically it is a Christmas song. <laughs> it's about Jesus? Yeah. It has lyrics? You, yeah. Ode to Joy? The fourth uh, movement. I guess there's a choir in there yeah, somewhere. Yeah, the fourth movement. Mm-hmm. Why do you think they're so joyous? Jesus is born, or dead, or risen. I think it's risen. I actually think it's an Easter song. I think it's an Easter song, but whatever. Regardless, it does play into the holidays.